You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. And let's get into today's episode. All right, part two is here of Colonel Stanley Evans' episode. Uh, just, yeah, incredible, incredible human being, as you'll understand from listening to part one. Part two only gets better, and by the end of this hour, you will realize that you can do a lot more with your life. Um, you know, someone who graduates who gets out of the military, who turns down becoming a colonel, to come, uh, turns down becoming a general to come back to Oklahoma, to enroll in law school, and then becomes assistant dean, I think, and dean of the law school. You know, it's um, it's an incredible story. And, and, you know, he's in his 70s, and he, he goes in every day. He's giving back to people. He does a lot of community speaking. And if you get the chance to sit down with him or listen to him speak, please go and do it your life will be changed. I promise you that. So enjoy part two and we will catch you next episode. Cheers. When you leave the military and, and, and back to, you know, what you said, hey, once I'm out of the military, Sandra, it's your time. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll do that. And obviously she's very, you know, very smart and, and mm-hmm. was ready to go and back to Oklahoma. Why? I mean, what comes to mind? What what does she do when, when you get back to Oklahoma? Because like you said, it's her time. But then also, how do you get into going to OU Law? Okay, well, let me talk about her first. Um, We started talking about moving back to Oklahoma about eight years before I retired. And to be very frank, I'm on a track to become a general officer. Um, I do extremely well at Fort Leavenworth, which was my last place. And all the generals in the signal course in, we see the path for you. And understand how things work. In a branch like the Signal Corps Communications, there's probably about 35 generals, I mean 35 colonels in the whole army, yeah. those Signal Corps colonels. Only 10 of them got a shot for general. Okay, I pushed myself into that 10. Out of that 10, only about four of them are gonna actually make general. And so what happens at that point is you got all these guys looking for you and they are starting to decide who do we see that we will be comfortable with is going to be the next senior officer in, in our branch. Um, so a part of that is they put you in what I call kingmaker jobs. Okay. When I got to Leavenworth, I was probably in the 30, but not in the 10. Yeah. But what I did at Leavenworth as a commander, what I did at the Army Commander General Staff College as a dean, put me in a position where a lot of people could see what I, could, what I, what I was doing. Understand this about the military. The military at the senior levels is about trust. Everybody is good. Everybody is good. But you want people around you that you can trust so that you know that things are going to get done the way you want to get done. Like when I work for a general or even a colonel or whatever, one of my rules, it's like even at the law school, I work for Dean Coates. Um, I know the job. I really know the job. I can get the job done. But more important than that is knowing what two or three things are very, very important to Dean Coates and make sure that those things happen the way that he wants them to happen. 
that can get you fired if you don't understand that. Yeah. You can be as good at your job as you want to. Because when you get to the senior levels, it's about trust and about be willing to say, if I'm not here, will you do it the way I want it done? So that's what happened for me moving, moving forward in the Army. So I'm, I'm going there, and I'm at Leavenworth, and uh, my mentors called me up and said, we want to send you to Washington, D.C. We want you to go to the Pentagon, and we want you to take this particular job. And I said, I've been to Pentagon three times already. I am not going back to Washington under any circumstances. And they say, Stan Edmonds, you're burning bridges. Yeah. Then I get calls from two more generals that called me and said, we were looking at you. Do you really want to put, push us away? And I said, I don't want to go back to Washington. And being a general is not the most important thing in my life. The most important thing, number one, is allowing Sandy Evans to do what she wants to do. Yeah. And two, um, you know, I'll be a general. I'm not unhappy to say I don't want to be one. Sure. But I've done military for 32 years. I'm perfectly happy with my career. I'm actually about a rank and a half above where I ever thought I would get to. And I want to do things in such a way that I support Sandy Evans. Sandy Evans does not want to go back to Washington, D.C., which means I don't want to go back to Washington, D.C. They said, Stan, we love you, but um, you're out of the loop now. <laughs> and so that— but The good thing was it was on your terms. Well, well, absolutely on my terms. Yeah. And it was so important that when Sandy—I knew that I wouldn't have gotten to where I got to without her support. And when you start to reach senior ranks in the Army, it's a lot about your wife, too. If she's supportive— it really eases things along. If she's not supportive, it causes a headache every single day. And Sandra was extremely supportive. And not only was she supportive, she enjoyed it. So that was kind of what led us to leaving and coming back to Oklahoma. And so we made a decision to come to Oklahoma. We looked at it. Uh, I actually bought my house here five years before I got out of the Army. And that leads me to the story of Lisa lived there because she was in Oklahoma. Yeah. And when she got killed, she was right around the corner from where we lived. And so that almost created a problem because when we retired, Sandra really didn't want to go back to the house that we bought in preparation for retirement. Because you have to pass the corner where Lisa was killed to get to our house. Every day. Every day. Yeah. It's, and, and it's tragic obviously what happened to Lisa and mm -hmm. um, but at the same time I know you have the things that you've done and the, what you explained earlier about the way that you live your life mm -hmm. because of the life that she had you know it, I'm sure she would be extremely proud you know of you and Sandra as well for what you guys have done um, and it, was that kind of a motivation to go into law school then of something to do when you came back um First, did Sandra go to? Was she still at Southwestern Bell at this point? No. Okay. She worked at Southwestern Bell. Basically, when I came back from Vietnam, uh -huh. okay. Another one of these times where she had to walk away walk from away, a promotion, walk yeah. away from a job okay. because the Army sent me elsewhere, and so I went from there. I think Fort Hood, Texas. But Lisa coming to OU was a strange thing, anyway. Coming to Oklahoma. Because we lived all over and we were in the Army, neither one of my kids had a real connection to the state of Oklahoma. None, none at all. So Lisa's a National Merit Scholar. We'll talk about Stan later. He, he, went, he went to college on the mom and dad plan. <laughs> but later on, he came around too, and I love what he's doing. But Lisa, she could walk into a, a classroom and breathe and get A's. Stan could get A's too, but he had to work for them. So she, again, National Merit Scholar. And so all these schools on the East Coast, we were living in Washington, D.C. at the time. That was my second or third time at the Pentagon. And so we were living in Washington, D.C. And she um, was, had no interest at all. You know, when she was in National Merit, um, you know, she wanted to go to all the big journalism schools. Um, Syracuse, she looked at the University of Virginia. She looked at Howard, which was right there. We went all the way down to Duke and to uh, University of North Carolina. And of course, every school she looked at accepted her. Yeah. And I said, did you apply to o OU? She said, mm -mm. I said, you know, your grandparents are there. What happened, um, OU 
and I think President Boren might have been there because I think he started the program, had this program where if you're a National Merit Scholarship, it's an automatic full ride, which to me I think is a fantastic thing. I think it really put Oklahoma, one of the things that really put OU on the map. Also, working for Boren was so doggone great because there are certain people in your life that are so doggone smart that it makes your head hurt to be around them. Boren is one of those. Because Boren can visualize stuff. And I used to hate it. Because, you know, there was President Boren, there was Dean Coates, and then there was me as Dean Coates' assistant dean. Every once in a while, Boren pick up the phone and call me directly. <laughs> and he would say, Stan, I'm on my way to the airport, and I was just thinking about you. And I'm like, <laughs> what that really means is he has just thought up some impossible mission that he wants me to do. And I'm, I'm the I'm going to be the point person on it. Yeah. And I said, here we go. I think what made me different in my relationship with President Boren, because sometimes I could see him go through people and kill them, was that I would never say no. And I don't mean I wouldn't say we couldn't do something. That's what people would say. Yeah. And I would say, whatever he asked me to do, I accepted the fact that Boren had already thought it through. When he's talking to me about it, he's already seen the success. What he needs is somebody to be his point person to make sure that things fall in place the way they did. Instead of worrying about, this is too hard, I don't know how to make this work. The only thing I had to do was be smart enough to know which resources to ask him for before I jumped into it. Right. And I just, I, it really worked. One time he calls me and he says, Stan, we need to get this kid in law school. I said, okay. And he starts telling me his uncle is a $10 million man. His dad is a $10 million man. So whatever it takes to get this kid in law school, get him in. And so I go back, and I know the admissions committee really doesn't like to be told who to admit into law school. They really don't. Especially law school. They don't. They don't <laughs> not like to be told that. Yeah. Uh, but believe it or not, actually, the president of the university can bring anybody in he wants to. There's a, a caveat. He can okay. do that. But he doesn't like to use it. He likes to... Massage it yeah. and let you make the decision. Ha, ha, ha. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he tells me this kid, we need to get him in law school because he's looking at these um, donations we're going to get. And so I start to do research on the kid. The kid's grades suck. Um, his LSAT score sucks. But what I found was that I said I can work around both of those if I can just work it. Seven DUIs. So I call President Boren up, and I says, I can make it work, but I don't think you want this kid in law school. I don't, I don't think you want this kid to be a lawyer. And he says, what do you mean? So I, I tell him, and he says, Stan, you're right. And I said, here's how we're going to fix this if, if it's all right with you. Let me talk to the kid. Let me talk to the parents. He said, you willing to do that? I said, sure. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to the kid about other alternatives that he might have other than coming to OU Law. And he says, Stan, that's perfect. Just tell me how it comes out. And I do, and I do. Yeah. And I guess what I'm getting at is I accept the missions that I got, but at the same time, it wasn't that I said no. I just figure out ways to get him where he wants to be in such a way, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh -huh. And I, I enjoy that, but they sure would give me headaches. Like, he calls me up one time and he says, Stan, Ms. Looper's mad at me. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He says, you know I love Ms. Looper, and you know Ms. Looper loves me. Something has happened that has got her crossways with me. I'm not even sure what it is, and I don't want to personally get into it, okay? So would you dive in, find out what's going on, and fix it? Whatever she wants, you fix it. So I go see her. And it's, I don't want to get into Miss Looper, but as Miss Looper got older, her office is her living room couch. <laughs> so you go in there and you sit and you talk to Miss Looper. And Miss Looper is a lot like him. You might not do exactly what she wants, but she's going to get something out of you. So I go there and I'm talking to her and I get this problem solved. Um, and it, it was about her Miss Black Oklahoma pageant. I don't know if you know Miss Looper had ran a Miss Black Oklahoma pageant. And so I says, what's the problem? The problem was 
kids. We have Miss Black Oklahoma at, at Miss Black OU. She's supposed to be in the Miss Black Oklahoma pageant with Miss Looper. She decides that working with Miss Looper is too much work because Miss Looper doesn't run a pageant. Miss Looper takes a whole week and she grows kids, which okay. I think is great. Fantastic. So this kid decided, this girl decides that she doesn't want to do that. So I go back to the university and talk to the VP for students and I said, here's the problem. Here's how we can solve that. We need yeah. to find somebody else to represent the University of Oklahoma in the pageant. So we do that. And I said, to make sure she's really happy, we need to buy two tables at the banquet. <laughs> and so <laughs> that Done. takes care of that. And it's, it's kind of like you're not doing anything wrong, but you've got to understand what his ultimate goal is. And what I really liked about him is understanding that he's always thinking in the bigger world. And so this piece right here might be a piece that's bothering him, but what's, you need to understand how to solve it within the bigger world. You might not do exactly what he wants, but he, what he really wants is to make sure that he makes Ms. Looper happy. And, and, and that she knows that he's her, her friend. If that, did I say that right? Yeah. That he's her, yeah, he, that he's her friend. So you have things like that. Um, there was another time where we had a Miss Black Oklahoma reigning okay. in the law school. So she comes there, and she's struggling. She's not doing that well in law school. So she comes in my office one day, and she says, Dean Evans, I'm going to have to take off for a week to go participate in the Miss Looper's um, Black Oklahoma pageant. I said, no, you're not. She says, I can't tell Miss Looper I'm not going to participate in the pageant. I can't do that. I thought about it a minute and said, you're absolutely right. Miss <laughs> Looper will kill you. Yeah. So I said, let me talk to her for you. You just go to class. So I called Miss Looper up and I said, Miss Looper, do you want a lawyer or do you want a former law student? And she says, we're really, really proud of this young lady. We're glad she's in law school and she's going to be a great lawyer. I said, she's not going to be a great lawyer if she flunks out. And I said, to be honest with you, she's struggling right now. And we can fix it. We're going to get her through this but we have to have her have her full attention in class. Yeah. And so Ms. Looper said, what are you talking about? I said, I need to talk to you about pulling her out of the pageant. She said, she's Miss Oklahoma. She needs to be there crowning the new lady. And she, she, I said, well, she told me she needs to be there for the whole week. Can we take it down in one day? Ms. Looper says, if that's what it takes to make it work. And then she says, oh, by the way, I need a master's of ceremony. <laughs> For the next three years, I was Miss Master of Ceremonies <laughs> at the Miss Oklahoma, Miss really? Black Oklahoma pageant. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, and see, to me, um, it wasn't like I was doing a favor. For me, it was an honor for Miss Looper to come back to me and say that I could do that for her. And so even though it sounded like I was solving a problem in one way, I was helping out in another way. Because... Ms. Looper did so much for me when I was a kid by changing the way I saw things, by making sure that I was involved, that to me, to do that for her and also to save this young lady who later on became um, um, a, a, a Senate staffer in the U.S. Senate and is now just doing very well, you sit there and say, golly, yeah. you see how these pieces come together. Right. It's uh, and that's why that's the beauty of it, right? The beauty of, of mm -hmm. knowing that of having that impact and seeing that person's story and back to you know you, you, the twenty years ahead, yeah. that, that vision, right? Absolutely, because because you know, like you said, this this young lady, you know, if you hadn't had that conversation or those relationships or done it the way that that you had done it, mm -hmm. she would she would it, have been you know a it, law student. It would have hurt all of us yeah. if she didn't get through law school. I mean, she's a very dynamic lawyer now. She's working in a big environment, and she's still growing. Yeah. She's still growing. And you get these, I call them kids. You get these kids, and you can see the potential in them. And you say, wow. You know, and you just want to make sure that you open doors for them. Yeah. It's like, again, yesterday when I was talking to Bowen, one of the things I really dwelled on is, okay, doors are opening. And you go through the door because the door is opening. Who are you bringing behind you? If you go through the door and the door is allowed to close behind you, what have you done? Nothing. Because a person doing it at one time, you need to open a, a door so that everybody can get through. And so that's, 
that was probably the central theme of what I talked about at Boeing yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing that just came to mind, back to the military, were you in, were you in the military when the Twin Towers were hit? Yes. No. no. I was in law school out. at OU. Okay. I, I was trying to figure out the timelines probably were pretty close. No, I was, in, I was at law school at OU. Okay, yeah. Because obviously I remember that day. I mean, yes. you, know, you remember that day as well being in law school. In fact, I can tell you all about it. I'd love to hear it. Um, I had class that day, and I'm here at home leaving. And as I'm driving down the street, there's a guy. I'll take that back. I went for a jog that morning. As, as I'm jogging, I see a guy working in the yard, and he says, Stan, did you hear about a building falling down in New York? And I said, I hadn't heard nothing about it. Didn't think about it no more. So I get to school, law school, and I go to class. And our professor comes in, and she's crying. And she says, I can't believe it. And she starts telling us about it. And it was like such an emotional thing that we just couldn't deal with class. And she says, I'm dismissing my class today. And about an hour later, Dean Coates closed the law school down. Um, you sit there and you think, from my perspective, how can we allow this to happen? And at the same time, it's like, what are we going to do about it? And you sit there, and I'm, at that moment, I think about a year and a half out of the Army. And I know how I would think about it if I was in a position where um, I could do something. For example, what I think back, you remember the, in 1991, when we had the war with uh, um, Iraq, the first one? Desert Storm? Desert Storm. And... I walked in to, again, another assignment at the Pentagon. <laughs> I walk in there, and the very first week I walk into my job, which is I was in charge of assignments for 98,000 enlisted soldiers in the Signal Corps. Yeah, I got, for lack of a better term, 28 little old ladies <laughs> to work for me. Okay, so they were actually doing the work. Yeah. But you get there. And you got to think about the policy of what we're doing. We did something called stop loss. I don't know if you know what that means, where people who were about to get out of the Army, stop. You're not going nowhere. Yeah. People that were being transferred, stop. You're not going nowhere. So everything in the Army, as far as soldiers were concerned, they would stop where they were. And we went to individual assignments. I remember working for, I think it was 11 straight weeks where I worked seven days, 12 hours. And what we were doing in my place was, was to make sure that if we were sending soldiers to um, Saudi Arabia, every unit had to have the right, exact right component of signal soldiers. So my job was to go through every one. Like I said, for example, we're gonna pull a unit out of Fort Hood and the unit might have 30 signal soldiers in it and they have different job descriptions. Before that unit left Fort Hood, I had to pull soldiers from all over the world to make sure that they had the exact right component of soldiers to go so when they deploy, they would be full up, full up, full up strength. In addition to that, uh, we were having a mess with North Korea at the same time, and there was something going on something, somewhere else. You had to balance that in such a way that you didn't create a weakness in another area of the world at the same time. And I'm sitting there, and I got colonels that are calling me from all over the world. Why are you taking your soldiers out of my unit? Or why are you putting soldiers in my unit? And I knew that the ones I was putting the units in were the units that the Pentagon had decided were the ones they were going to deploy. The ones I was taking soldiers out of, I knew that they were soldiers from units that the Army had decided they weren't going to deploy. Now, these commanders from all over the world are calling me up, asking me why am I taking, moving their soldiers around? Because when I move them, I said, you got 12 hours to leave this unit and go to that unit. And you got to be on an airplane or something. And so you're sitting there, and I know what's going on, but these guys are calling me. Who Many of them I know. I can't tell them why. And they're like, they're cursing me out. <laughs> but you have to do what you have to do to make sure that everything is right. And so to me, it goes back into something we said before when I was talking about one of the things that you see as soldiers advance, officers advance, it's about trust. Many of the officers that were calling me when I would tell them, understand that my job is to put soldiers in your unit, or my job is to take soldiers out of your unit. I can't talk to you about it. You just have to trust the fact that that soldier has to go, or that soldier, you got this soldier coming in. Right. And they'll say, well, 
I wanted this soldier up. I said, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I got my orders, and it's much higher than you. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and to me, that is, for lack of a better term, that was my last war. And although I didn't deploy, I, you know, I, my role was to make sure that every unit that deployed in the entire world, wherever they were, had the right amount of soldiers at whatever moment they needed them. Yeah. And it, it was, it wasn't scary more than anything else. It, was, it made me realize the power and the trust that other people put in me to make sure that those things happened the way that they did. Yeah. It's... I mean, it's a tough thing to do, right? You're sending people to war, right? Mm-hmm. After after yeah. being there yourself in Vietnam and being, you know, and to be on the other end of sending a young man or a young woman to do a job that they've trained to do, you know, especially, you know, it's probably been a while, you know. Well, to me, what you just said is the crust of what an officer is about as far as um, leadership and combat. Um, I remember I got in trouble once. Um, you remember I told you I was in Tyler, Texas. I mm-hmm. taught ROTC at a school called Texas College. Uh, I was there for three years. <clears throat> and I remember one of the things I used to do was if the class was started at 10 o'clock, it would start at 10 o'clock, and I would lock the door. Yeah. And so a lot of students would just kind of felt they could stroll in. I'm like, no, I don't play that. And so it got to the president that I wouldn't let people in my class. I mean, literally, the president called me in. And he says, he's, he used to crack me up. He says, Captain Evans, you know, you need to be a little bit more gentler with our students here. You know their background and you know this and you know that. I said, I said, Mr. President, you're exactly right. I do know the students, but I also know this. I am training these people to be lieutenants and officers in the United States Army. And I got to train. I said, if I don't start the training here, where, where are they going to get it? Yeah. And I said, also, I got to find out which ones we can trust, which ones we can bend on. Because I have to make a decision and say, okay, this guy's going to be an officer in the Army. Nope, this one's not. And I said, I, they have to meet the standards. And if they can't come to class, and if they can't be prepared, yeah. how can I trust them? with 38 people's lives. Uh-huh. Because you sit nail on the head when you said that. I've always believed that the mission is the most important thing, but this close to that, this close, is making sure that we don't waste soldiers. Every time I get a soldier in my unit, one of the things I think about is this parent or this spouse sent this kid for my care, for my personal care. And if I don't understand that and I don't take care of this kid because I might have to put this kid in a situation where they're going to lose their life. Therefore, I need to be thoughtful, I need to be caring, and I need to be understanding when I make that, make that decision. That should not ever, ever be an easy decision. And I've been put in positions where I've had to do that. And so to me, it's important. And so if I'm teaching, I have to teach the people coming up to take that decision seriously not cavalierly. Right. Going right back to General Fields again. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and obviously and, you brought that into 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 being, you know, the assistant dean of the law school. And mm-hmm. now, you know, you're taking these soldiers who, who are under your leadership into now your kids. Yes. And, uh, you know, under your leadership and going on into the future. And, and I want to touch on, because we haven't touched on it yet, is the increasing rates of diversity inclusion in mm-hmm. in, in and, in what you've done down mm-hmm. at OU. I'll give you the chance to talk about that because well, it's, it's very good what you've done. It's the same thing yeah. at a different place. And it kind of goes back to what I talked about before. I think diversity is important and inclusion is important and equity is important, but it has not, it can't allow us to lower our standards. It cannot, we cannot do it by lowering standards. We have to do that by teaching our community to rise up to what the standard is. So when we recruit, and when I recruit, and when we recruit, because it's standard of the school now, uh, the GPA numbers are important, the LSAT numbers are important, but sometimes you can find a kid that might not quite have those numbers. Remember, I flunked out of college. Mm -hmm. They might not have those numbers, but they have something else that can show you 
that they can pass the test. And so we're really recruiting on potential. Uh, now, when you get somebody in there, the other part of that is, and we accept that at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Other law schools don't necessarily accept that. They'll have a class where they'll maybe flunk out a third of the class or half the class. We have a 94% graduation rate. That's because we look at people that we're going to recruit. They don't have to be perfect coming in the door, but we accept the responsibility to grow them. We accept that responsibility. We accept the responsibility to build a support system around them. And that all goes back to uh, Dean Coates. When Dean Coates was there as the dean, one of the things he told me to do was to do whatever it takes, but at the same time, I don't want to produce substandard lawyers. Coming up in the environment that I come up in, knowing that sometimes people don't get the opportunity, and sometimes they grow up, you know, going back to me going to college, I flunked out of college because I didn't understand why I was there. It wasn't that I didn't have the potential. It wasn't that I didn't know. It was because I didn't understand why I was there. Okay, when a Native American comes to OU Law, a Hispanic comes to OU Law, or a black person comes to OU Law, more often than not, they do not have four generations of lawyers in their family. So therefore, they don't really understand what they're getting into. They just know that they want to be a lawyer and they fought to get to this point. Um, if you got four generations of lawyers in your family, it's just like, I got a guy who lives across the street from me and I love him. He is the third generation lawyer in his family. Both of his kids are OU Law graduates. When I, I recruited them and I got them. But at the same point, I never had to spend a second worrying about whether they got it when they came to law school, not a second. But there are kids there that don't even understand the environment that they're coming into. So we have to build a support system around them to get them to rise up to the standard. Um, so first and number one, coming in the door, we have to make sure that the potential is there. Uh, number two, we need to build a support system around them so they don't get completely lost when they get there. One of the things I talked about yesterday was understanding that lots of Hispanics and African-Americans come from families that they support their family before they even come to law school because they are the star of their family. Or they wouldn't even be in the building if you follow my drill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when they get there, law school is not the only thing they're dealing with. Right. So therefore, their grades might not necessarily be the first year what they're, what they're supposed to be. Plus, law school is training is different than any other college. So the, the, the learning the Socratic method of teaching yeah. freaks people out. Right. So therefore, we have to understand that we have to work with them to get them to understand that this is a massive change. Therefore, their grades might not be exactly the same the first year. But when you look at them the second and third year, they're everywhere you need to be. For me, the problem becomes then, number three, make sure that they can find useful and beneficial jobs coming out of the law school at the other end. One of the, for lack of a better term, fights I've been fighting is law firms will come to the University of Oklahoma and they'll say, well, we want somebody out of the top 15%. The problem is that first year, because they didn't know what they were getting into and they have to learn the system, many of the minorities don't get there the first year. But if I said, if you cut out that first year and look at the grades beyond that, you're going to find that you have a quality person. Right. It's taken now about 15 years to get firms in Oklahoma to understand that. And I'm, I'm so ecstatic right now yeah. because we got people like Andre Caldwell that we talked about. And you see them, and you get them, and firms are looking at these folks to say, okay. I said, well, test them. I said, put them in positions. They said, well, I said, I said if you've got a question, bring them in as interns so you can see what, you, see what you're playing with. And then you make your own decision. And I was probably as proud this year as I've ever been. One of our students is an African-American comes in my office, and she said, Dean Evans, I need some help. And I said, what's the problem? She said, Crow Donlevy and McAfee Taff had both offered me. And I said, isn't this the beginning of your third year? Not the end? She said, yeah. <laughs> and she said, I don't know where you want to go to. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you got a year to go. I said, these are the two, two top law firms in the entire state. Yeah. And they have got the message that if they look at you hard enough, they're going to find something that's worthy of their firm. And here's one that has 
not looking for a job when she graduates, but coming into her third year, they're fighting over her. And so I'm like, okay, maybe my work is done. <laughs> and you know, my work will never be done, but right. you sit there and you see that I now have a whole kind of state of Oklahoma on board that we are producing quality people at OU Law yeah. that, that are gonna represent your firm well. It's amazing. It, sadly, it's taken 15 years, right? Well, when Dean Coates hired me, and I didn't talk about this, yeah. he hired me and says, I want you to be my dean of students. Just after you graduated. Two days. Right? Two days after you graduated. But then a week after that, he calls me in and he says, Stan, I didn't hire you to be dean of students. Yeah. I'm like, what is he talking about today? He says, I hired you to help fix Oklahoma. And I said, what do you mean, Dean? He says, Oklahoma is changing. 30% of the population of Oklahoma State of Oklahoma are from minority backgrounds. It's growing big time and it's changing. We need to produce lawyers that understand the change. We need to produce lawyers that are empathetic. And that's not the right word. Um, that understand the change. Uh, we need to produce lawyers that not only minorities, but also in the majority, so that understand that people have different perspectives than the one that they have. Mm -hmm. So not only are we looking to produce minorities, we also have to produce majorities that understand why other people got there. When people talk about diversity, sometimes they talk about, well, we need to get so many of this and so many of this and so many of that. Wrong answer. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is get the whole community to understand that they have a role to play. Yeah. If I have a white student or white, there's going to be a white attorney, I want him to understand that everybody doesn't see the world the same way he does. I want him to have empathy for those that don't and understanding for those that don't so he can be or she can be a better lawyer. Um, and, 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 and that, to me, is the essence of what we're trying to do. It's not about the minority when you talk about diversity. It's about everybody. Yeah. It's about everybody. And if you can get th that kind of thinking going on throughout the law school, then we're going to produce better lawyers, the lawyers that are going to change Oklahoma, the lawyers that are going to change the rules, the lawyers that are going to rise up to be governors and senators and congressmen and whatever. And so going into my 20-year plan, often a student come in my office, complexion, I don't care, yeah. and I, they'll say, most of the time they're worried about what job am I going to get when I graduate from law school? I said, if that's all you're worried about, you're wasting my time. And he said, Teen Evans, I need to make sure I get that first job. I said, no, you don't. What you need to be worried about, I said, how old are you? And they said, I'm 24. I said, tell me what you're going to be when you're 44 years old. And half the time I get, haven't thought about it. <laughs> Just thinking about tomorrow. Just haven't yeah. thought about it. Yeah. And I said, today, or I want to see you again tomorrow, and I want you to come in and tell me about your perfect life if everything goes the way you want it at 44 years old. Because I want, what I want them to think about is, it, going back to the very first thing we talked about, every person is a VIP. Every person has the ability to make a major change in the world if they choose to, if they choose to. And what we want to produce, Dean Coates, me, and President Bourne, is people that understand that and they put themselves on the path yeah. to get there. You know, one of the biggest liars I ever met was President Obama. Really? Yes. What did he lie to you about? If you remember, when he was running for office, he was U.S. Senator, right? Yeah. First term. Okay, one of his speeches, he got up and says, well, you know, I would really never thought about running for president. I, this was just something that suddenly came on me, and I just decided I wanted to be president. I looked at, listened to that, and I said, that is the biggest lie I've ever heard in my life. And so I called him the big liar, yeah. because it is a big lie. I guarantee you that when he was a kid, and he lived all over the world, you remember he lived in Indonesia, he lived in Hawaii, he lived in Kansas, he lived in Chicago, and so then he goes to Harvard. Okay, this guy's editor of the Law Review. That's the top, highest, face thing there is. He leaves there and he goes to Chicago to become a worker in the community. Then he runs for Congress. Then he runs for Senate. You can sit there and see the pattern and say that he was probably thinking about being president when he was a teenager. And so I, I, I love his humility, but at the same time, 
it's, the message is that you got to start thinking about it early. The people that are going to be president 20 years from now are thinking about it right now today. Yeah. They're thinking about it. And so I said, I want you to be thinking about, you can be the mayor of Oklahoma City. You can be the person that can be the director of the health program for the state of Oklahoma. I said, lawyers do those jobs. Yeah. I say, you can be the chief operating officer for Integris Hospital. I don't care. Mm-hmm. So. I know if all you want to do is just help one kid, you can do that too. And I don't mind that. That's what your vision is. But at the same time, why not say, I'm going to be the person that's going to fix the health system for the state of Oklahoma and start thinking about it right now. Then you build your plan and then you say, okay, if I'm going to do that in 20 years, what do I need to be doing in 10 years? Then what do I need to be doing in five years? Then what do I need to be doing in the next three years? And then it's as simple as that to put the plan together. And then you start working it. Yeah, I'm going to put that in place because I, I mean, I, I'm 32 and I'm thinking, where do I want to be when I'm 52? Thank you. That's my whole it's point just, at all. You know, it's, it may, you know, because, and, and, and the whole thing, right, you know, you don't eat an elephant, right? You just one bite at a time, you break it down into that's, a daily thing. I use that all the time. And, and that's how it works. And it's amazing. Yeah. I would love to be still doing this at 52. I'd love for it that it's all that I do. Well, it's like this. When I look at Sandra and I think about her, and I look at the opportunities she's had to be a principal. Mm-hmm. I look at the opportunities she's had to be an administrator. And we sit down and we talk about it sometimes. And she taught in the classroom for 36 years. And I said, why didn't you jump for some of those other opportunities? She said, I didn't want to do nothing but teach kids in the classroom. That's all I want to do. I don't want to be an administrator. I want to be. And see, to me, it's not that that's a low job, because I personally think being a teacher is the most important job there is, yeah. regardless of what some people say. Mm-hmm. If you're the right teacher, and you're the right kind of teacher. Sure. Sandra's been a teacher of the year in three different school districts. Alaska, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and um, wherever we were in Virginia. And you sit there and you say, well, let's get you, make you an administrator where you can work with other teachers. She said, I don't want to work with other teachers. I want, want to work with teach. kids. That's all I want to do is work with kids. You know, other people can do that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it's about you saying, okay, do I want to be doing this 20 years from now? And you're exactly right. I was 31 when I got my bachelor's degree. I was probably 32 or 33 the first time I thought about having a 20-year plan. You know what my first goal was? I wanted to be, um, trying to think the right word, because it's not being wealthy, but having resources in such a way that I could do exactly what I wanted to do by the time I was 50. Yeah. And so it didn't mean being rich, because I had other goals. Right. But I wanted to be at the point where I didn't have to lean on anyone else or do anything else to get me. So if I decided at 52 I want to go to law school. I, my classmates laughed at me. They did. I come back to Oklahoma City. Remember this is where I went to high school? I have a very close-knit class. Yeah. And they're like, Stan, why are you going to law school? You reti- we're retired. Yeah. And I said, okay, look at it this way. Um, three years from now, I'm going to be 50, 57 years old. Do I want to be 57 to be the way I am right now, or do I want to be 57 to be a lawyer? Yeah. I said, I think it makes a difference. The reason I chose lawyer was because that was actually my third choice. Yeah. My first choice was I wanted to be a fifth grade teacher. I wanted to be a fifth grade teacher because if you pay attention to what's going on in school, that's the grade that we start to lose kids. Yeah. Fourth grade, the teacher's God. They will do whatever the teacher says. Still innocent, yeah. Fifth grade, they start to exert their independence. Mm-hmm. And so they start to get a little stubby. Fifth, eighth grade is when we, we lose kids, really. So. What happens then is that an African-American male figure in a classroom can play an enormous role toward helping to change that. Because, see, I never, ever move away from the fact that we need to model what we want people to be. And everybody needs to find a model. Cause so rule number one is develop a dream. Rule number two is to find mentors. Yeah. And so finding mentors means that you have to see somebody accomplishing something so you can believe in yourself that it can be done. So a part of my role, almost in everything I do, is to mentor other people, so that they can, but not just to talk to them, but also model myself so that they can see that this is the way to do it. 
getting into my rules, number three is yeah. do the work. You've got to prepare yourself for um, whichever you're going to do. And understand that sometimes it takes work. Yeah. All the time it takes work. And finally, rule number four is you have to deal with dream haters. Dream haters are people out there that you want to do something, and they're not necessarily bad people. They're just people that distract you from doing what you want to do or making the preparation that you need to make or, or putting you on a different path. Sometimes the distractor is somebody, you ever be around people that always want you to do what they want done rather than listening to what you want to do and, and going that way? And so you have to be judgmental about how far you want to deal, deal with that person or to follow that person. And, you know, dream haters is probably kind of harsh, but it, it gets the point across. Yeah. So, you know, one, two, three, four. It's that simple. It's a real thing, though, isn't it? There's so many people out there who just because... And, and I think it's a lot more now, especially through social media, because they're not doing it to a person face-to-face the other side. It's just sending my thumbs are busy. I'm sending a hateful what a comment, whatever it is. Social, uh, media, social media is making us weaker. Yeah. It is. And people get mad at me because I tend to veer away from social media. I don't do Facebook. I don't do... You know, I don't even have a thing on my phone where you can leave me a message. And I only answer the phone when I want to. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I just feel that if, if I'm in here talking to you, why should I leave you to go answer a phone call? Right. Because you're just as important as what's coming in on a call. Yeah. That call, call, if you know if the number's there, I can find that later. So to me, people are important. Everything to me focuses on the fact that people are important. Yeah. Last thing, because I know we haven't touched on it yet, and I, I, I think a lot of people probably share this when they talk about you and talk to you, is that they could sit there and literally talk to you for eight hours. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just an absolute joy to do this with you. The last thing we've got to talk about is obviously the Hall of Fame induction. Okay. And the speech that you gave when you were inducted. Um, Dean Coates was there to introduce you. And you came out and you started with a poem. Mm-hmm. If if you would, I'd love for you to recite that poem for us today. I don't have my notes in front of me. Okay. Because I'll probably mess it up. The poem is called Mother to Son. And the message of the poem, and it's by Langston, yeah. Langston Hughes. The message of the poem, and sometimes people miss the message. Mm-hmm. The message is not about the mother. The message is about the son. And she wants her son to understand that life is not easy. And she, needs, she wants her son to understand that as we go through, we need to grow ourselves to do the work that needs to be done, and we need to accept the fact that life is not easy. Um, it's something that, 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 that as we think it through, as, especially as a mentor to my mentees, I don't know whether you noticed, but I had probably about 25 law students there. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the fact, because I convinced my dean to buy two tables. <laughs> I convinced two different law firms to buy tables. And I asked them, I said, you know, because most, I don't want to sound tacky, but most of the time, to these events like this, you got a bunch of old people there. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't want old people there. Or they can come. That's fine with me. But what I want to do is to bring people there One, to see that a person like me, a person like them, can get up here. And so that was it. And so the poem was really to them to understand that as their mom, I want them to understand that life is no crystal stair. Don't expect it to be. Expect to work because the harder you work, going back to what we were talking about before, God doesn't give you challenges that you can't overcome. You want challenges because challenges lead to greatness. They really, really do. And that was the message of the poem. Yeah, I have it here. I just pulled it up. Okay. Um, and it is, and I'll link it in the description for okay. people listening because it's, 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 it, it, you know, it's really impactful. Yes. Right. And, yes. And when you really listen to it and you look at it line by line and you break it down, and over your years of speaking in front of military crowds, students, you delivered it perfect with no notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, I think it was, you know, a great way to start and a great way to end your speech. You know, I'm still climbing. I'm still climbing. And great, it's just great life lesson. Well, 
just between you and me, there was another line I should have put in there. Because <laughs> there's a line where it talks about, I want my son to see that this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And I later on, when I thought about it, I should have added that as my final line. Mm-hmm. Because it, you, you have to be careful that the poem doesn't is, is not about me. Sure. It's about what they can be. Yeah. And, and to go further on that, you're going to be on the board next year, mm-hmm. right? Alongside Andre. Well, like I said, Brenda just... <laughs> She's like, hey, you're great at this. How about we fill your schedule and you teach kids and tell uh-huh. kids stories? Well, see, to me, you, you, you mentioned why at this age do I continue to do that. Mm. I just want the world to be better. And, you know, I don't want to... I want to make sure I'm saying this right. I want you to decide what your world is going to be. But I want you to be smart enough to see far enough ahead that you don't accept superficial things as success. Does that make sense? And so to me, when I talk to students, I talk to kids, I talk to young kids, um, normally, I guess if you're younger than eight, (laughs) 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 but I have some of those too. But it's... I, and what I'll do is I'll tone my comments to the age group of the people I'm talking to. Because I'll talk to people in their 50s. Yeah. And it's just like today, you said you were 52. No, you want to be 52. Yeah, when I'm 52, yeah. And I was like, well, I didn't get my college degree until I was 31. Yeah. And I didn't really start thinking about the far, far future until about then. And I sit there and I talk with my spouse. Are you married? I am, yeah. Everything that you do, let me ask you this question. Uh-huh. Do you plan on being married to the same person when you... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay, if that's the case, you guys are partners in everything. Yeah. And if you're partners in everything, then you need to talk about it. And sometimes there will be a modification because of the way that your partner sees things versus the way you see it. And that's important that you accept those modifications. Like when Sandra says, I want to come back to Oklahoma, and she meant Muskogee, I'm like, yeah, we can come back to Oklahoma. <laughs> And, and But if you're not ready and committed to having your partner with you, then you haven't really thought about where you are. Right. It's like I talk to students all the time, and, and often when I share with them, especially applicants, I say, um, do you have a girlfriend? And they say, yeah. I said, why is your girlfriend not here? And they're like, what? I said, why is your girlfriend not here? I said, are you guys serious? And they say, yeah, we're probably going to get married. I said, then if that's the case, you need to make sure that she's with you during this path over the next three years. Mm-hmm. Because what's going to happen? You're going to grow dramatically in three years. You're going to grow into a different person. Okay. You don't, I don't say you don't, I say you need to think about, she's going to, uh, she needs to understand the change and she needs to be a part of the change. If we have an activity in this law school, you need to bring her to it. If you need to make her a part of what's going on there so that she understands and she's a part of your support system. Uh-huh. And they all buy into that. I've actually had people engage, I mean, propose in my office. <laughs> have you officiated any weddings? Yes. Yeah? Yes. I had one of my students call me up one day and he said, I want you to, to officiate my wedding. I said, I'm not a pastor. I don't do that. He said, give me $20. <laughs> I'll get you your certification online tonight. So I have a certification, and I can do marriages, and I've done one, yeah. I've done one so far. Brilliant. To many more, I'm sure. Well, it's, it's not something that's important to me, but it's important to them. Yeah, it is, yeah. And if that's the case, like one of the things I do when I, when I did this one, and I do this with, even with people that I don't marry, right. I like to talk to them as a couple and sit down and talk about what's really important. Because I'll tell people, I say, look, if you're in law school and it causes you to lose your spouse, have you won a, a loss? And they'll say, well, I said, you've lost. I said, the person that you're committed to, if you aren't committed to them for life, why are you with that person? Right. Another rule I learned from, learned from my dad, because um, he, he, he spout wisdom from time to time. He says, you know, if you're dating a girl, and you decide that she's not the one, why would you go out on another date with her? And I thought about that. A lot of people don't agree with me on this, but I totally agree with what my dad said after I thought about it. Yeah. Because here's what happens. If you're dating somebody and it's not working out and you continue to date that person, there's another person out there that might be the right person. They're watching you. 
because you might they might see you that way. But if they see that you are not coming that way or you're too tied up here, they'll go somewhere else and you've lost the person. So just do the right thing all the time. Yeah. It's a great way to end. And I love your quote that's in the bio, that's in your bio in, in, in the Hall of Fame uh, page, which I'll link that below. And it just says, give a damn. Ah, yes. Thank you. Brilliant. So that is my quote. Yeah. I used to have a pastor in Alaska would get mad every time I said that. He <laughs> said, can't you come up with something that, that doesn't have a curse word in it? <laughs> And he, he actually would preach sermons, and he'd get up and talk about me, and he'd say, we got this commander at Fort, at, where was I then? At, at, yeah, Fort Leavenworth. Yeah. He said, he says, just give a darn. <laughs> and I said, that's not what I say. And everybody knows that. He says, well, the people in the church know that you say give a damn. Yeah. But can I talk about that for just a little bit? Yeah, of course. One of the things that I guess I feel very strongly about, and it goes back again to general fields, not walking by things that need to be fixed, and not stopping to fix those things along the way, are not helping people that need to be helped. And so you've heard the phrase, I don't give a damn about this, I don't give a damn about that. And so I decided that if we're gonna be the kind of people we're supposed to be, we need to give a damn about everything. So when I was in my unit in Alaska, and this goes all the way back to the 1990s, when we would salute, I'd always make my soldiers say, give a damn. And at first it freaked them out because they, they liked the fact that they were cursing in yeah. public, you know. Yeah. But the point was the message got through. And it's kind of like, even in my um, personal statement that got me in law school when I flunked out of college, you put a hook in there to get people's attention. It goes all the way back to selling Bibles in 1966. My hook in law school, what, to get me in law school, was the first sentence of my personal statement was, I flunked out of college. And now I'm going to tell you why you're going to admit me in your law school. And if you stop and think about it, they might be disinclined to admit me because they see my transcript from way back. But see, I start out with, okay, it's not about that transcript. It's about what I've done to overcome Uh from that point. And I tell students even today, we're we're not going to admit a single person because we feel sorry for them. We're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to admit people that show us how they overcame things. And so that's the key. And so all that boils down to is give it in. Yeah. What a great way to end. Okay. Colonel Evans, Dean Evans. Stan. Stan, now uh, thank you so much for sharing some fantastic stories. I know even though we've sat for two hours, uh, we've only scratched the surface and the, the impact and the, and the stories that you have and the people in your life, because I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, but thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate, on behalf of everyone at the Hall of Fame, what you do and, and the kids that you're, the lives that you're changing and, and the kids that you have all over the world that are impacting and doing great things. So thank you so much. Uh, for people listening, I will post all the links in the descriptions. You guys can go check those out, everything we've spoken about today. And we'll catch you next episode. Cheers. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at OklahomaHOF. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el arena now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlincoln. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.